All right, good morning, everyone. It's great to see everybody. Thank you for leading us well in worship this morning. Brother Matthews, we'll look forward to uh, continuing our worship in God's Word as we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to pick up reading at verse 16. 2 Corinthians 5. 16 through the end of the chapter, and if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. I'll stop there. I want to keep going, but anyway, we'll stop there. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Be seated, please. As I was reading through the, the scriptures just to refresh my mind this morning uh, in preparation for uh, the sermon now, uh, it just struck me again as to how the apostle, as he goes through this section, it just, he piles one thing on after the other and it's all connected. So trying to find stopping spots <laughs> to go, okay, we'll just cover this part and still have a complete thought is sometimes a challenge because so much is connected through this whole section, uh, beginning really with uh, chapter 4 and working on into chapter 7 as well. But we're going to focus on this passage. We have come now to the culmination of this chapter. We've had a couple of messages that we've looked at through here. First part of the chapter, if you remember, was a focus upon the longing that Paul had for ultimate peace and freedom from opposition and persecution, longing for home. And then while you're in the midst of that longing and realizing that uh, there's there's more to to our lives as believers than just this life, but we long for the ultimate life with Christ. In the meantime, we're still here. So what are we living for? And we looked at that in the center part of this chapter. I noted there that our lives are to be given over to devotion for him, that we are living for him with all of our heart, soul, and mind out of gratitude for the deliverance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Then I was thinking about this chapter. Now, we come to this last section, which the focus here is upon being ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, when we think about this particular section, it's easy to see the connection to what Paul is talking about here, to the idea that he is going to speak to later in this book, 
when uh, he speaks of tearing down strongholds, which Mike mentioned, and which is the theme of this whole series through Second Corinthians, uh, the book of Second Corinthians. So, how does all of this relate to that idea of tearing down strongholds? Well, being an ambassador, that makes sense to us. We're going and speaking God's truth into the world. That, that makes sense. But it's built upon those things that came before it. And when we think about what is around us in terms of the plans of the wicked, the, the ideologies and the, the, the understanding that the lost have about the world, it can certainly be tempting for us to turn off our concern, as, as many have done, thinking, I'm just going to live for the future, living for the second coming, not worry about what people are saying and doing now around us. No, we're longing for home. Yes, we are to be living for Christ. Yes, but we can even do that in sort of a insulated sort of way, right? That we're just kind of living for our own self and our own sense of, okay, I'm complete now and I'm, I'm, I'm obedient to Christ and so everything's fine. Now, there's going to be an outward focus as well. But along the way, what happens is that because of our fallen condition and because of our limitations, we tend to look at outward appearances, don't we? And we just look around, and even when we take onto ourselves, uh, as we, so to speak, this idea that, all right, I'm going to go out into the world, I'm going to get people on board, I'm going to talk to people about Christ, it can be really tempting to just look at people on the surface and even judge our own selves on the surface and just think, well... Um, I'm going to undertake this work of reconciliation and I'm going to say this and do that and so on and not really be doing uh, the Lord's work as we should. These verses here come immediately upon the heels of verses 14 and 15. Not surprisingly, because 16 follows 15. But anyway, 14 and 15 speak to the compelling constraining love of Jesus Christ, do they not? Let me remind you what is said there. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, he says, we regard no one according to the flesh. I think all of us have heard that little saying that whenever you see a therefore, you should ask what it's there for. And what struck me as I was going through this particular section is that unlike the prior sections where Paul will talk about various ideas uh, one after the other and, and kind of connect them together, this, one is, this section is connected a little bit differently. When you lay it all out, Everything is subordinate. It starts and everything is subordinate to the next thought, to the next thought, to the next thought, to the next thought. If you were going to just, if you outline it, so to speak, as to its order and how everything relates, you would see the starting statement up here in the corner. And then as you indent in to show subordination, the whole thing just goes just like that. There's no, oh, let me start over here with another thought. It's all connected. And so I was thinking, all right, how are, how are we going to look at this and how are we going to grasp what all is here? Since Paul has just got 
all of the stuff that's going on in this particular section. And thankfully, Paul being Paul, who is very logical about things, loves to show connections. In this case, throughout this particular section, you see the word therefore three times. And at the very end, not therefore, but you see so that, and it's kind of an equivalent kind of statement. So Paul just says, all right, well, here's these thoughts, and therefore, here's these thoughts, and therefore, these thoughts, and therefore, these thoughts, so that this is true. So that's the way we're going to organize this and walk through this passage, just following Paul's thought here and try to glean the principles that he's talking about, because the focus of all of this is that God is the reconciler. You and I can go about doing our business and he has given us business to do, but ultimately it is God who is the reconciler of fallen man to himself. But it's all within the context of the love of Christ that compels us and constrains us to live for him and therefore do those things that he has called us to do, even though we recognize that at the end of the day, you and I don't save anybody. You and I don't reconcile anybody. We're the spokespersons. We're the ones are the Lord's mouthpiece as he speaks into the world. And so that love that compels us should compel us uh, just as it compelled Paul to do those things that he did. You know, as we live for him with longing for ultimate rest, we, we, we can strive as much as we can, and we should, but ultimately we cannot, by living, even by living for him, we cannot reconcile ourselves to God. God has to do that work. We can't bring about that reconciliation by our own strength in the lives of others either. He alone reconciles. So, Paul starts off his passage with a therefore. Therefore, because of the compelling, constraining love of Christ, Therefore, God reconciles us uh, in various ways. And this first section, verse 16, is sort of a, a bit of a puzzle in, when you first look at it. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. And it sounds like he's saying, well, we're not going to be men pleasers anymore. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about pe putting people up and you know, in your mind because of their position or their authority or something else. What he's saying here is that, well, first, the word regard, it means to recognize or to comprehend something in some way. Paul here is reminding us that mere external appearances are insufficient. Now, why would he say that here? What does this have to do with the compelling, constraining love of Christ? You constantly have to remember in this book why Paul wrote this book in the first place. And that is to speak to the Corinthian church about the, the challenges that they had in receiving him as an apostle and acknowledging that and responding well to his authority. They struggled with that. There's no doubt about that. They know it. He knows it. And there are still some that are regarding him according to the flesh. That are looking at him and going, well, his speech is contemptible, his appearance is, hmm, right? And so we're just, he's not impressive at all. He's not our idea of an apostle. So therefore, 
we don't have to listen to this guy. After all, he wasn't one of the original 12, blah, 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 blah. Okay? And Paul has been asserting his authority all the way through this book. And asserting it not, again, as we've talked about the last time, not so that he could say, look at me, what a wonderful apostle I am, but all for the sake of the kingdom of God. That people were not, by rejecting him, to be rejecting Christ. Paul had been regarded by some in Corinth as inferior, as I said, for various reasons. But he's saying, in a kind of a backwards kind of way here, there's more to Paul's ministry than meets the eye. And the reason that there is, is because of the ultimate change that took place in him, that the Corinthians were not acknowledging. When Paul, I mean, if you think about on the road to Damascus, at Paul's conversion, think about pre-conversion Saul. How did he regard Christ and his followers? On a surface level or at a heart level? Surface. surface. Absolutely. Post-conversion Paul, how did he regard Christ? It's completely differently, didn't he? Remember at his conversion, the question that he asked when he was struck blind? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Paul, in his blindness, got an eyeful of who Jesus really was and really is. And it utterly changed him from the inside out. He no longer regarded Christ according to the flesh, merely as just some zealot or some a rabble rouser or someone who was a heretic or someone who was saying he was, he was blaspheming by saying he was God, looking at all these surface considerations. Just this morning, um, in fact, I'll mention this right now. Some of you may have wondered a little bit of what was happening during Sunday school. We got, uh, there was a, a couple here in town that um, was picketing down at Mountain Springs Church um, anti-Trinitarian messages and uh, trying to challenge people about, you know, there's no Trinity and you need to repent and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of the verses that they had on one of their signs was, it says, the man Christ Jesus. So therefore, that settles it. It's like, do not regard Christ according to the flesh. But that's all they're doing. All they're comprehending is an English translation of, of what the Greek has to say without taking into account all the other passages that there are that speak to why that term man, the son of man, related to Christ is so important as a messianic term, as well as his ultimate uh, uh, personality of being God and man fully without confusion, why that's so important, a complete misunderstanding, a lack of understanding, ignorance, whatever the reason is, rebellion, but saying, nope, I'm only going to go on the surface because that doesn't make sense to me. Well, that's what they've been doing to Paul, and that's what many do to Christ. And if you do that with Christ, you're never going to become a real, you're, not, you're never going to be born again. Because you're not worshiping Christ as he has revealed himself in the word. You're regarding things only according to the flesh, what makes sense to you in your mind. And Paul starts off here. He says, my ministry among you, and therefore the ministry that we all are to have one another, must start here. 
that we no longer regard Christ according to the flesh, verse 16. We regard him thus no longer, even though we did. Paul acknowledges that there was a change in him. He had an intellectual comprehension, but that intellectual comprehension was limited by merely fleshly restraints. When God reconciles us, he, doesn't, he reconciles us contrary to human expectations. Our expectations are that, well, think about all of the various and sundry heresies regarding the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's a created being. He's someone who's uh, maybe, uh, not, maybe above the level of humans. He's kind of on the level of the angels. And he earned his right to... Uh, to a, a world, or he earned his right to honor, or whatever else, or he's just, if you take many of the other ones, where he's not God at all, he's just a great man, or uh, he is God, but he's not really man. I mean, all of these various things that, that man has come up with, because uh, uh, we don't like the full picture, because it doesn't, it is beyond our comprehension uh, to, to understand how it all works. It's a mystery. We can't get there. But, so therefore we turn it on its ear and go up. Now, I, I, can, re I can reject it. Paul says, no, when God reconciles you, he reconciles you according to his perfect plan that he put into place through the God-man. The only one who could fully represent us and fully represent God at the same time. And do so Perfectly. Yeah, if that means that our God is beyond our ultimate comprehension, um, so be it. Honestly, most world religions are about gods, are about making up gods that we can understand and control. And that's not much of a god at all. Here is the beginning of our reconciliation with God. Recognizing, regarding fully comprehending in his fullness who Jesus Christ is. This is the starting spot. Not just according to fleshly concerns, but according to as he really is in all of his fullness. Therefore, because that is true, because Christ is no longer regarded in mere human expectations, according to human expectations, when the Lord, when the Lord does his reconciling work through such a savior, his reconciliation is consistent with his own divine prerogatives. Now, prerogatives is a, it's, of course, it's not a word that's here, um, but uh, very clearly prerogatives are what's involved here. The word prerogative, um, according to Webster's, is, uh, it means the exclusive right and power to command, decide, rule, or judge. Now, it's a word that gets used uh, fairly often, I guess. Maybe not as much as it used to be. But when someone has a certain prerogative to do something, it means they have the right to do it. The right to say it. The right to make a judgment about it. When we talk about divine prerogatives, we're talking about, as everything else with our God, absolute prerogatives. It's speaking to his sovereignty and his authority to speak into his world and do the things that he likes and in the way that he likes and command of us to get in line with it without us judging it or without us thinking, uh, naysaying it or second-guessing it. He's the sovereign. 
period. And when you see this here, uh, when you read these verses, verses 17 through 19, springing out of the thought that Paul has had about Christ being, uh, and by extension, Christ's um, uh, representative, such as Paul, not to be regarded as just the human expectation, but there's more to, to uh, this Savior of ours. This holy, divine Savior has been carrying out God's plan that he, by his own sovereign prerogatives, that, by the way, is a redundancy, uh, by his own prerogatives has uh, put into place. And what are those prerogatives? Take a look, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we think about creation itself, the creation of the universe, the creation of the world, we as conservative, Bible-believing Christians have no problem whatsoever saying, yep, God created the world the way he wanted to. After all, nobody was there at the time to question him. He just did what he wanted to do. And we marvel at his creation, and rightly so. We worship him because of this incredible creation, and rightly so. When it comes to the salvation of our souls, we have the same kind of language, the same kind of pattern uh, that we see when something that has been corrupted by sin, has no merit, has no loveliness, has nothing uh, by which uh, God could uh, look at us and go, hey, well, that one's a pretty good one, so I'll save that one. Um, No, it's not quite out of nothing, but there's a similar kind of pattern that the Lord, and it's used here in this passage and other passages as well, referring to our salvation as coming into new life. It's a new creation, and uh, there's a change. Something has taken place. So the prerogatives of divine creation are in view. All who are in Christ are changed. Charles Hodge points it, says it this way. He says, our union with Christ is transforming, is the word he uses, and I like that. Everything changes for those who are in Christ. Commentator uh, RBG Tasker uh, put it this way, the new order foretold in the prophet Isaiah has now become a reality. And he cites Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. And those, that new thing is fulfilled in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as he redeems his people takes us out of darkness, brings us into his marvelous light, takes out of us the heart of stone, puts into us a heart of flesh so that we are new creatures before him. The image of God is being renewed more and more through sanctification day by day unto ultimately being glorified with him forever. His creative work continues on, and that is his divine prerogative. Notice also in verse 18 and 19, And uh, there's a little bit of a, uh, we're going to look at 18a and 19a and then 18b and 19b. So the first half of these verses speak to divine initiative. How does God do his reconciling work? Is he waiting for us with bated breath to make a decision? The answer is no. You will not find that anywhere. 
anywhere in the scriptures. There's a word in theological circles that uh, some of you are undoubtedly, uh, undoubtedly familiar with, and that's the word monergism. The word monergism uh, combines two words, mono meaning one or only, um, single, and the, uh, the, the energism part on the end has to do with work. Uh, you put it together, one work. It's, it's describing a theological understanding that, um, that reconciliation, ultimately redemption, is God's work, God's action, from start to finish, independent of human decisions and works, as opposed to synergism, which is the working with, that's the sin, S-Y-N uh, prefix on there, that, um, that uh, salvation is a cooperative endeavor between God and man. What you see here is, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation, the old has passed away, the new has come, we've been transformed, all this is from God. All this is from God. God truly is the reconciler. As Charles Hodge pointed out, it is vain to attempt to secure the favor of God by being holy. What? What are you talking about? I'll finish his thought. We must enjoy his favor before we can be holy. Because when we're dead in our trespasses and sins, the hope of, uh, if I can just, through my holiness, earn God's favor is a vain hope. That's what Hodge is saying. You have to enjoy his favor, the favor of regeneration, his initiative in your life, before you can then respond in holiness. And it kind of goes back to that prior section in this chapter, doesn't it? About living for him. Right? It's not living for him so that we can earn it. It's living for him because of what he's done. And so we have this, the prerogatives of divine initiative. This is how God reconciles. He reconciles sinners to himself by his own action that this is from him. Look at verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God's the one who's doing this. He's not waiting for the world to be reconciled to him. He's the one who's doing it. Now, that brings me to the next point there. The prerogative of not only God's initiative, divine initiative, but also his divine planning. All right, look at verse 18 again. The initiative, all this is from God. The plan, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So there's two parts to that. And then also in 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of, of reconciliation. So there's this, there's this two-part plan of what's going on in the sovereign mind of God and his actions and his decrees and those things that he has set forth and the ministry that he's given to his servants to carry on in his name. That's the plan. Now, I love that what it says, what it says here uh, in verse uh, 18 and 19 both. All this is from God there's two words here that I want to point out to you. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then in verse 19, reconciling the world to himself. These things 
he is doing this on his own behalf, for his own reasons, for his own glory, as unto him who has the divine prerogatives as the creator and Lord of all, to call the shots any way that he so desires. And we know that it is just when he does. And he does this, here's the plan, through the mediator, Jesus Christ. And I love what we've got here in these two verses. In verse 18, did you notice the emphasis of the target of this work, reconciling work? It says, to us, right, in verse 18, he reconciled us to himself. And then in um, verse 19, God was reconciling the world. Did you notice the difference? Even in the English translation, there's a clue here. And they've caught, the translators have caught it well. He reconciled us. And he is reconciling the world. In the first one, it's uh, for you Greek scholars, which there are a couple in here. It's an aorist participle. Now, everybody should know what a participle is, right? A little grammar class. Participle is a verbal noun. A verbal noun. That means you're naming something by what they do. Okay? If it's an aorist, that means simple past tense. It happened at some point in the past. Present tense means something is ongoing. And it's an aorist. It's a past tense in verse 18, and it's a present tense in verse 19. So God is the one who is, he is the one, he is the one who reconciled us in the past. And he is the one who is reconciling the world and all unto himself. By the way, the world here is used in an indefinite sense. It's not a universalist statement. It's used as a description of the target group of mankind, not every single individual. It's very plain in the scriptures uh, just and from history as well. That, that's never been God's plan. Uh, but the target group of mankind is in view here. So then... Having him doing that sovereign reconciling work and continuing to do it in the world, then how does he make that reconciliation known? Through us. And I love this, uh, also the differences between 18 and 19. The, the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. Two parts. Two parts. And they're, they're really important to go together. The, the ministry of reconciliation translates the word that we get our word deacon from. It's speaking about a service unto, uh, uh, of uh, reconciliation. And then the, uh, in verse 19, he's given, entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. That is the word, a word that, that even if you're not a Greek scholar, you probably know, and that's the word logos. It's the word of reconciliation. Two parts to our ministry of reconciliation that he's entrusted to us. Now, again, as Bible-believing Christians, it can be very uh, um, common among those who are fervent about the word to just be so fervent about the word that they do absolutely nothing in terms of ministering and demonstrating the love of Christ in the lives of other people. All right? I suppose if you're going to have one error over the other, focusing only on the word, it would probably be the one. But, beloved, we're also called to the ministry of reconciliation in the world, where we show forth the love of Christ in our actions 
as well as what we say. And we minister to those who are hungry and thirsty. And, and you know, why do we have a benevolence fund? Why do we do that? Why do we care? Is it just so that we can, you know, pragmatically do something? Uh, no, it's actually, it's, it's an offering of, and a service of love towards others as we're striving to um, use those gifts that God's given to us in a, mean, in a way that can help people be on good terms with the Lord. It's not that if we hand somebody a glass of water, then now they're a Christian. See, that's the other error. Uh, sometimes called the social gospel, right? Where we're just, yeah, I'm just going to go out and, and even say, well, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to go out and do all these things, but they never really talk about Jesus. They don't really speak about his demands or don't really talk about his person or his work or the gospel or anything else. We're just feeding, clothing, doing medical work, whatever. Those are all wonderful things, but the two need to be together. That we're serving others with an effort to reconcile and we're doing it uh, enabled by and empowered by and enlightened by God's holy word, his truth. And we put both of those together to actually, that's God's plan. And that's, again, I'm going to refer back to the prior section. What are we living for? Well, it's to carry out the plan that he has for us while we remain here on this earth. And that is this ministry of reconciliation. Now, Paul, of course, is specifically in, the, in this immediate context. He's, he is talking about, um, I think, in a very, uh, very definite way, his own ministry. And, and he, when he says we, he's thinking about himself and those who are serving with him in terms of office, in terms of that particular calling. But by extension, it applies to us as well, because we are all called uh, out of darkness into light to serve as priests before our God, right? As those who are, and what is a major role of the priesthood? Intercession. Coming between God and a fallen people in an effort to bring about reconciliation by God's appointment. So we have that, that role before us. So we've been charged with both service and declaration regarding his reconciling work. Therefore, now we come to the third therefore, and this one seems to be just follow right on it. Um, in fact, I almost didn't do this as a separate point, but because of the, the therefore, I said, well, okay, it's there for a reason, so I'm going to use that as my next step here where Paul makes it explicit. Paul takes these comments about God and trusting the ministry and the message of reconciliation, and he makes it definite. So he says that, therefore, because this, according to divine prerogative, contrary to human, human expectation, God who, could, who spoke the universe into existence and who controls and holds all things together by the word of his power, Therefore, in his plan, he decided rather, because of all these other things we've talked about so far, that he will indeed use commissioned servants. He doesn't have to. God doesn't need any of us to go save somebody else. But he delights to use his people. It brings certainly glory to him when his creatures 
glorify him by declaring the truth about him and calling others to repentance and obedience and submission. But notice the term that he uses here, a term, I know this is a familiar passage to you. This is one of the more familiar passages, actually, I would, I would guess, in 2 Corinthians. He says in verse 20, Therefore, since, since God has entrusted this to us, we are ambassadors. As a result of God's choice in this matter, here's our appointment, here's our commission. We are ambassadors. And the word uh, ambassador is not that complicated of a word. It just has the idea of, of an envoy or a representative. Um, it's a related word actually to presbyter. It starts off the same way, pres, uh, And uh, so it's kind of like the elder statesman uh, kind of idea, all right? Does an ambassador, if he's doing his job, or she is doing her job, does an ambassador ever speak on their own initiative? Do they speak with their own authority? Do they speak something contrary to the commission or the authority that they've been given? The answer to all these, of course, is no. Note that the emphasis here is upon, it's, it's, I love this. In verse 20, God has ma makes his appeal through us. There's the plan in a nutshell. He makes his appeal through us. The word appeal there, it's a great word. It means to call alongside or summon. This is a summons that, you, that must be answered. God makes his appeal through us. And then it says, Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. God makes his appeal through us. What does that look like? Our pleading. Different word. This is about urging or pleading earnestly with others. This is the nature of our commission. And to fulfill our commission, we recognize that God is the one who is making the appeal. In theological terms, we would call that at least the external call, if not joined with the internal effectual calling under, under salvation. But God is the one who is making this appeal. God is the one who is doing the summoning, but he uses us to urge it upon those within our hearing, that we would plead earnestly with others to be reconciled to God. Take a look at 2 Timothy, if you would, chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'll be re begin reading at verse 6. Uh, Paul is speaking to Timothy, uh, uh, giving him instructions regarding exercising authority within the church and faith, being a faithful minister in the church. And I'll begin reading at 6 and read down through verse 12. And I want you to notice the, the connection between God's work and Paul's work, as he's describing it here, because it speaks to the same relationship uh, with us. He says in verse 6, For this reason I remind you, speaking to Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Why did Paul go through all that he went through on behalf of the churches? This is what he's been saying to the Corinthian church all along. I'm not here because I want to beat my own drum and blow my own horn. I'm here because of the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ upon my life. I cannot do anything else but that. And the only reason it has any power and authority is because of who he is and what he has done. If you were an ambassador for the United States of America, you're not just representing the, the wishes of one person who happens to be in office as your, as your, as, uh, your president or whoever's over you. I mean, he's there, but the, does the president... What's the difference? I'll put it this way. Think about the difference between a president and a king. In a republic, a president is governed by laws and represents the, represents the people that elected him there and is charged with and indeed vows that he will uphold the laws of the land and be subject to them himself. So that those edicts, if things are done properly and right, whatever edicts, whatever instructions, whatever declarations are made that an ambassador is supposed to carry on, that ambassador is not just saying a set words that are, are, are given without any context, but they are in the context of everything that that nation stands for. Out of the mouth of babes. Yeah. You know, when we are declaring the gospel and the message of reconciliation, it's not just, and don't get me wrong, uh, I think uh, you maybe have heard the Romans Road uh, where, for uh, leading people to Christ, three or four verses through the, through the book of Romans that talk about sin, talk about reconciliation, talk about the wages of sin, talk about the, re, the uh, remedy for it, and so on. And it's a great way to simply go through the gospel. That's fine. But I think sometimes we, we get a hold of those things and we just kind of go through it like it's some mantra or some little formula. If we just go through that and talk to people, we've done our job. Yes, we need to say those things. But recognize that as ambassadors for Christ, we're not just mouthing off a bunch of words that, that don't really have much meaning for us personally. We're, we're out of the context of of a life that is lived as well as the life that was lived on our behalf and the life that was given on our behalf and all of those things need to come into the way that we present what we present and how we live before those to whom we are de declaring the gospel. As an ambassador, 
In other words, you're not a private citizen. Let me say that again. And I want you to think about the ramifications of that statement. As an ambassador for Christ, you are not a private citizen. Beloved, to whom much has been given, much shall be required. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So you don't have the authority to go out and say whatever you want to say, live any way that you want to live, and not uh, and feel like you don't have to be subject to anybody uh, holding up God's word against what you're saying and doing and going, but wait a minute, pal. We've got a problem here. We've got a discrepancy. You're not a private citizen. You're a servant of the Most High God. Therefore, we are indeed held to a high standard by what we say and do. Thankfully, we're going to talk about this in the next point. The standard has been met by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we blow it all the time. But nonetheless, we don't just get to waltz through life and think, well, you know, I'll leave the, I'll leave the leadership to somebody else. I'll leave the witnessing to somebody else. I'll leave, no. You're not saved to be a freeloader. You're saved to be a servant. So, that's part of God's plan. That he reconciles using servants. That he's commissioned according to his word. Because of the constraining, compelling love of Christ, therefore, our expectations must be different in the way that we regard Christ and his servants. And because of that, we recognized, therefore, that God is the one who initiates things contrary to our expectations, according to his own initiative. And he does this in his initiative, in his prerogatives, through putting together a plan and then, and then putting together a, a, a team of ambassadors, of his commissioned servants, to carry out that plan. So that, with the result that, we can understand that... that this all comes full circle here in verse 21. That God reconciles not just, not just according to a, a, a plan, not just according to the, the whims of his capriciousness from one generation to another, but his standards have to be met. And all that he does in his reconciling work is consistent with his divine standards. And those standards are most vividly shown in the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in verse 21. Because even if we do everything perfectly in our commission, which we never do, true reconciliation between God and man cannot happen unless God's own standards for righteousness are met. And since we cannot do it, he must. So praise him, because he has done just that in the Lord Jesus Christ. This truly is the foundation of our justification. I love the construction that's going on here in this verse. Note what it says. In verse 21, Christ, uh, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Contrasted with us who are sinners, supply that thought because that's there, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, well, how, how is this put together? Christ becomes sin. And that means he is legally counted a sinner and subject to death. We become righteousness. We who are, have to be legally counted as righteous and therefore beneficiaries of life. Again, to quote Tasker, uh, he, uh, he writes, The question that Jesus asked, Which of you convicteth me of sin? was unanswered when it was first asked, and it has remained unanswered ever since. I want you to think about this. Wrap your mind around this. The, to me, this construction makes this very, very clear. How is it that the most holy Son of God can become sin and bear our sins and, and bear them away? You know, we're used to talking about imputation when it comes to us, right? We talk about Christ's righteousness imputed to our accounts, and that's absolutely right. Romans chapter 5, absolutely. We get it. When we say that, oh, there are heresies that do say what I'm going to say, but uh, when we say that, we're not saying that we've become perfect and that we are now sinless. It is a legal, forensic relationship. That's what justification is about. That the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our accounts, and our accounts are marked full, paid, uh, done. The debt of sin is covered and gone. And then through sanctification, we progressively, he progressively works in us to make us more and more conformed to his image. And yes, there should be increased righteousness and increased holiness and increased sinlessness as we go along, absolutely. But what is going on with Christ here? I would submit to you that on the cross, Christ did not become a sinner. When it says he was made, he became sin, it doesn't mean he became a sinner. It, be, it means it, our sins were imputed to his account. And in that sense, he became sin and therefore subject to, but voluntarily to the penalty for that sin. I've got a double imputation here. An imputation of Christ's, uh, of our sins to Christ's account, who then paid them fully. And an imputation of uh, his righteousness to our account, which we may enjoy fully. Think about it. If Christ had become a sinner, whose sins could he have paid for at most? his own at most but by he's still holy because of now being counted guilty separation from the father was necessary but he was able to bear all of our sins this is how God reconciles his children to himself through a perfect savior who voluntarily 
took uh, the guilt of our sins upon himself and paid that penalty. That's the standard by which you and I are reconciled to God. Let me run you back to verses 14 and 15 real quick as we draw this to a close. We read there again, the love of Christ controls us or constrains us because we've concluded this, that no, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. There's the imputation for those for whom he died. We talked about that the last time. And why did he do that? So that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then take that again with verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. My dear friends, Christ died for all his own. He secured our lives for eternity so that we might live for him. And so that we would call others caught in the strongholds of sin to repentance and reconciliation with their creator. Yet we know that at the end of the day, it is God who really is the only true reconciler. He delights to use his redeemed children as his heralds. It truly is all of God, as Paul says here. So rejoice in his plan and do your part in it according to his word and for his glory. Let us be faithful ambassadors for Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings upon us. Thank you that you delight to call us out of darkness into your light and then give us something to do, something that is not just mere formality, but is an integral part of your plan to reconcile your children to yourself. Let us be faithful in it, putting away fear, being motivated by your love, so that as we confront those with truth who are caught in the strongholds of sin, Lord, help us to break them out of that jail by your mercy and grace and the powerful ministry of your Holy Spirit. Or truly, as you work in our lives, the, the, new, the old passes away and the new has come. Let it be in our lives and in the lives of those to whom we speak. In Christ's name we pray.